probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me this week is... I'm Zachary T. Owen. Uh, I am a small press author, specialized in horror, and I've been kind of obsessed with, you know, horror in general and John Carpenter and cult movies pretty much since I was uh, about 12 years old. Yeah, and uh, Zach, Zach and I have known each other for for a long time. We're, we were like internet buddies, like way before that was like a, a Since normal the thing. MySpace days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is like super weird. But uh, yeah, I think you're probably the only person I still talk to from MySpace, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, so you know, Zach, you're huge into horror. We we talk about you know horror books and movies and, and music and stuff all the time. So thought it only made sense to have you on for the first week. So uh, I guess just to kind of start out, uh, before we dig into the minute, you want to tell me a little bit about kind of your, your thoughts on this movie or, you know, kind of your relationship with it or, you know, when you first saw it, that kind of thing? Uh, you know, I'm not – I don't recall exactly when I first saw it, but it, it must have been on television, which is no way to see the thing. It doesn't make any sense because <laughs> uh, it's so butchered. They have to cut so much of the uh, gore out. But I just remember having, you know, it was always kind of there. I always had memories of it. And when I got into horror, it was just one of those movies that I felt I had to see. And I, I watched it a lot sooner than a lot of other classics, actually. And I think it's one of my particular favorites of John Carpenter. And it's it's one of those horror movies that I think is just really, really bleak. And it has such an atmosphere about it that every time that I watch it, it's almost like it's the first time I'm watching it. Like I just fall in love with it all over again. Yeah. I, I, I have kind of a similar experience where, you know, lately I've obviously been like digging way into it and like watching it with commentary and watching all this behind the scenes stuff. And, and still, you know, every time I watch it, it's, you know, I get the same thrill and, and you know, my favorite scenes and stuff. And yeah, I, I talked about it a little bit in the, the kind of zero episode, the introductory one, but this was the movie that got me into horror movies. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I hated horror movies. My dad and my sister watched them all the time. And I was always like, you know, sitting in the corner or hiding under a blanket or just refused to watch altogether because I was just not into it. I was a very jumpy kid, I guess. But yeah, I had a, uh, I had a, my cousin in, um, either middle school or high school, we started kind of really getting into movies and he was always into science fiction and horror stuff since he was a kid. So he was trying to get me into it. And I made him promise to, uh, to tell me, to warn me before jump out moments. And then I would watch some horror movies with him. And this was one of the first ones we watched. I think we watched some of the alien movies first, which I, I also really liked, but this was the movie that I was like, man, like, why have I not been watching horror movies? Like this is totally what I'm all about. So yeah, it definitely had a big impact on, on me too. So I guess uh, let's talk about this minute. So obviously this is a super exciting minute of the movie. <laughs> um, it uh, starts with the Universal Picture credit, not logo. Um, and then it ends a minute later with the credit for co-producer Stuart Cohen. So just a, a couple of things that I found out that were kind of interesting. 
the uh, this is one of the few Universal films at the time that didn't use the actual logo, the the spinning Earth logo that they use for most of their movies. They were going to use it, but they were worried that it would confuse people because they'd have the spinning Earth logo and then. Like ten seconds later, they'd have an actual Earth that the UFO is crashing into. <laughs> they, they really didn't have a lot of faith in their audience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess not. I guess they were a little, maybe a little too worried there. But um, this was—I didn't know this. This was kind of interesting. They said that they toyed briefly with the idea of um, of having that logo actually be the Earth that the UFO crashed into, which is kind of interesting like that might have been kind of cool i mean i get why yeah, they would have liked to have seen that actually yeah i mean i kind of i'm trying i was trying to think of some other examples of when movies kind of use like the production company logos in a interesting way like that the only, the only one i could think of off the top of my head is um i know alien 3 they do the fox logo and the fanfare and the the music at the end of the fanfare like holds off on like a really uncomfortable note like it doesn't resolve uh, and which kind of yeah. leads into the movie in an interesting way i kind of recall it wasn't really involved in the uh, plot of the film or anything, uh, but wasn't there a moment in uh, was it one of the Jurassic Park movies maybe or something? I have some vague memory of like I don't know if DreamWorks or not DreamWorks. I don't remember the company, but it was like a kid fishing on the logo, and then he gets pulled oh, off yeah. and here screaming. I wish I could remember what that was, but yeah, I think that's you're the right. only one I can really think of. Yeah, I have to look that up. That sounds really familiar. I think that's the DreamWorks logo, but yeah, I don't remember which movie that is. But yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to do. I wish more movies, you know, a lot of movies just start with like, especially now there's like six production companies. So you just get all these logos at the front end of the movie. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of nice when they can integrate that in an interesting way. But they didn't go that way with this one. <laughs> so they also were not going to put the title at the beginning at all. They were going to leave the title for the very end of the movie, which might have been pretty interesting I, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that one i would have liked to seen the universal earth thing but this i think the title is such a the, the way it's animated is such a cool way to start this movie I, yeah i agree i mean that's like the first really striking thing about the movie and it's right in the beginning i mean, I mean you don't even really know what's going to happen yet uh, and uh to me the whole credits after the movie is over thing i've never really gotten used to that and i know that it's a lot more common now with films yeah um, but I, it, for me, you know, when I see the title of a film, it's always like, okay, the movie's about to start. So when I watch movies and they end with the title, I always feel like, oh, you know, the movie's about to start. Oh, you know, it's over. And it kind of <laughs> – the momentum is already gone. So I see what they're going for, but it, it's never quite gelled with me. I just kind of prefer the old-fashioned way. So I'm glad that they didn't put it at the, at the end of the film. Yeah, yeah, I definitely prefer it at the beginning on this one for sure. It, it's It's – it's definitely an integral part of the the experience for this movie. So speaking of Universal, some of the other movies they put out that year, just to kind of get some context, in 1982, E.T., which we'll definitely talk about when we talk about the reception. <laughs> um, E.T. played a big, big role in why this movie did not do very well. E.T. came out two weeks before. Um, Conan the Barbarian, Cat People... Uh, American Werewolf in London had come out pretty recently, which is uh, that's pretty important to the the story of this movie for sure. Halloween two, which um, Carpenter produced. Uh, yeah, right? I think he had uh, some kind of screenwriting credit for that. Like he may have done the story or part of the screenplay or something. If yeah. I recall, he was he was kind of marginally involved. I think, but yeah, not like yeah. And then uh, the other one, this didn't come out in the same year, but I, I thought it was interesting, is uh, Videodrome came out the year after, which is another kind of special effects masterpiece that I know um, both of us are big big Cronenberg fans. Yes, yeah, a very different movie, but kind <laughs> yeah. of revolutionary in similar ways, at least, you know, when it comes to special effects. 
Yeah, for sure. It, it was interesting. I was watching a special feature on, I think it's on the Videodrome Blu-ray. I think we'd actually talked about this before at some point, where it's there. It's an interview with John Carpenter and John Landis and David Cronenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. I uh, recall that, too. And I believe they're being interviewed by Mick Garris. Yeah, that's right. Who went on to do a lot of Stephen King adaptations, including The Stand, and now has kind of made quite a career for himself, you know, with Masters of Horror, and he's done a lot of television work. So it's kind of like a super group of horror people. Yeah, it was fascinating. And, and Gaze was super young, too, uh, yeah. which is which is kind of funny to see. He's like, he almost looked like he was the intern at the station that, like, you know, convince them to do this weird, like, little feature. <laughs> I think feature. that's kind of how his story begins. I mean, he, he was uh, at one point like a desk person, I believe. I just listened to an interview with him recently, and he kind of worked his way up and started doing uh, scripts and stuff for uh, Amazing Stories, the uh, Spielberg-produced show. So. Yeah. But, yeah, it was it was awesome to see that because it had, I had never put it together in my head that um, American Werewolf and The Thing and Videodrome were all – coming out or being produced almost at the exact same time, which is like incredible. Like it's kind of amazing. I, I really wish I had been around in 1982. <laughs> oh, um, me too. I always have uh, this fantasy of, you know, if I had a time machine, instead of doing anything really beneficial, I would just go <laughs> back in time and go into the movie theater and all my uh, favorite years of cinema. Yeah, totally. It's it was just kind of incredible to just see that all happening at the same time. Uh, so since we're talking about other movies that came out, let's get into the reception a little bit. Have you, uh, have you ever read any of the reviews of the movie that came out at the time? I mean, I've skimmed them. Um, and I know that the movie was very much panned. Uh, critics really didn't like it. Um, but I, I think that, uh, with critic critics, it's always sort of like sometimes, they don't understand what a movie is trying to do, I think, until a long time after. And I don't know if a lot of those people change their minds, but there are a lot of other films, especially horror movies, that weren't really celebrated when they came out. I mean, The Shining was panned mm -hmm. by quite a few critics. Uh, Peeping Tom ruined that director's career, but now people consider it almost an equal to Psycho, and I believe they came out the same year. And I always think that's an interesting thing to note. And that's also something that happens with a lot of John Carpenter films. Yeah. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China was not very successful, and now it's you know a very beloved film. Uh, it seems a lot of his career is movies that are appreciated more in hindsight than they were w when they came out with, you know, notable exceptions like Halloween was huge, but right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating. And the, the whole thing always makes me think of like, you know, what movies, especially like genre movies and stuff that are coming out now that are getting like terrible reviews and stuff might be, you know, cult classics in 20 years. But the other thing that I think about is I don't know if that, if the market works in the same way now that it did then too, because this was, a big part of the thing's reception and kind of legacy, I guess, is, um, you know, home video had really kind of right. such a big... That saved a lot of films. Yeah, yeah. And it was such a big thing at the time, just kind of getting started, too. And I, and this is one that, you know, gained a lot of popularity on, on TV and, and through home video release, which, um, you know... I don't know if now that's even a factor since movies, you know, with VOD yeah, I mean, and all I that. Yeah, I a very small factor if it is one at all and streaming has really changed the way people digest films and you know that's something i've always wanted to take more of a look at but i have a hard time wrapping my head around it i mean literally filmmaking and how films are marketed is so different now than it was then and i think it's constantly evolving and i think it's 
the main reason that people like John Carpenter or, you know, Toby Hooper, uh, directors like that have a harder time really making movies. I mean, John Carpenter's kind of thrown in the towel, though I think he's happier because he seemed, I think, a little uncomfortable sometimes in the spotlight. But a lot of, a lot of very important genre directors have a hard time even getting movies funded now. Yeah, that's true. It's a it's a weird market because now there's like it seems like there's a there are more ways for indie filmmakers to get movies made, but and and I guess in in a lot of ways it's easier because it's less costly to make a movie with right. you know, digital video and and all that, but you know, at the same time that means there's a lot more garbage coming out too. So it's a lot harder for maybe for distributors or for, you know, even fans like us to to d- really dig through and find the really good stuff. So. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of very positive stuff about today's market and, you know, how things work now. But with that, there's also just kind of a glut in the market. There's so much stuff, like you said. And it's hard, I think, for a lot of movies to find their audience because there's so much out there to consume and you can do it so instantly. Like I could I could mm-hmm. just spend hours on Netflix and Hulu and all that stuff. And there, it just seems like almost an endless supply of stimulation. And uh, I mean, a lot of that stuff too, it's like an indie filmmaker might not have the resources for marketing that a studio group has. And so, you know, how do they get people to find their movie? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a different market now. Um, but it's, it is interesting to see that like so many of these kind of early eighties, you know, uh, horror movies that were really just considered kind of schlock at the time, you know, even though, you know, they were kind of starting to get some recognition with like, you know, American werewolf the year before had gotten an Oscar for the, right. for the makeup effects, which seems like, you know, a huge step forward for, for, you know, genre movies or, or horror specifically, but obviously, you know, here we are 30, 35 years later. And there's, you know, very few horror movies are getting nominated for best picture or anything like that still. So, you know, it's still in in some ways that I guess that hasn't changed. It's just kind of, you know, morphed into something a little different. Right. And I think that will always be sort of the case. I mean, horror is the only genre I can think of where when people ask me what kind of stuff I write, if I tell them horror, sometimes I get a scowl. But if I said romance or, you know, literature, I, I don't think I would get very many scowls. I don't know what it is exactly. Uh, I know a lot of horror directors have said have uh, mentioned that people tend to view horror like a step above porn, which is pretty harsh. But. Yeah, yeah, which actually goes right into um, some of the things people said about the movies, which I know, probably the most famous thing is um, that John Carpenter kind of always, I guess, stuck with him because he brings it up a lot, is that he was called a pornographer of violence after this movie. And that was one of the things like, he, like he it's it's kind of interesting that when he was making this movie, it wasn't one of those things where like, I don't know of a good example, but you know, where somebody's making a movie or something and they, they just think it's some, just put out another movie or whatever. They don't really think that much about it, but like Carpenter knew like this was like a big deal. And he, at the, even while he was making it and afterwards he, you know, has always said it was uh, his favorite movie that he made and the most challenging. And the thing I think is, I think he said it was a movie he's the most proud of. So, I, you know, it was really kind of devastating, I think, for him to kind of hear that stuff. And, you know, some some of the other reviews, I think my favorite one, this is Alan Spencer in Starlog said, it's my contention that John Carpenter was never meant to direct a science fiction horror movie. Here's some things he'd be better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks and public floggings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, 
that's good bad press though to me i would feel <laughs> something like that because then people go well what's this all about and they kind of want to see the film yeah true um, yeah definitely nowadays that would that would probably get win you a lot of uh a lot of nerd cred it's, it's like um <laughs> i always like the idea that um cronenberg's crash um not to be confused with the with the other crash movie one of the reviews was like, it's just sex and car crashes. And that was meant to be a, uh, you know, a dig at the movie, but that was like what they put on the DVD box. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, certainly if I had no knowledge of Cronenberg or that film and I saw that tagline, I'd be like, huh, I kind of want to see what this is about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's maybe one of those things where like at the time there was not, you know, with that before the internet, there wasn't such an easy way for, you know, horror fans to kind of communicate, to see that right. kind of stuff. So maybe that's part of the reason too. like, like now if somebody put that review out like 15 minutes later, you know, there'd be a huge demand for it. But you know, that I guess word spread a lot slower in 82. Right. And that might have, uh, I mean, the fact that so many movies did better on video kind of proves that whole point. You know, a lot of horror films, especially were more popular on video than they were in the movie theater because it took a lot longer people to, to kind of communicate to each other about about the film and i think carpenter sort of got back at a lot of his critics when he made they live and he has that great <laughs> scene at the end where um the newscaster is revealed to be one of the uh aliens and i, be, I believe it's even one uh, one of his critics i can't remember his name right now it might have been leonard malton oh really saying, like people like uh john carpenter and george romero need to show a little restraint <laughs> Uh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, I, that's you're probably right. That is a like direct response to this. I'm, I'm sure. So we've we've gotten a little, we've gotten kind of far afield. So we let's um bring it back just a bit to the the minute, and we can talk uh, pretty briefly about just some of the people that are in those credits because um, some of them have done some interesting stuff, and I'm, I'm sure they'll come up in other minutes too. So in my notes, I have uh, Todd Ramsey is one of the credits. Um, he was the editor. He had done Star Trek, the first Star Trek movie, and Escape from New York before this. Hadn't done a whole lot of other really interesting stuff that I saw, but it is interesting. This is probably going to be a through line at some point talking about the crew. It seems like there were a lot of people on this that worked on the the first Star Trek movie or some of the Star Trek movies. There's a bunch of crew people, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is, and I think in a roundabout way, it kind of makes sense. Um, I mean, this movie is bleak compared to Star Trek, but... You know, I, I think it's also pretty heady, and a lot of uh, a lot of Star Trek still resonates today because it it has compelling ideas that I think um, we still think about. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, there's definitely a through line between those two movies that you know you can connect the dots pretty easily. Probably, I did find it kind of interesting that Ramsey did not work with Carpenter again after this. He only edited Escape from New York and this, which is. Kind of surprising to me because I think this movie's edited really well. I'm, I'm surprised that Carpenter kind of moved on, or you know, I wonder what what happened there if there was some kind of falling out. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting uh, story to hear if there is in fact a story. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> he, he's had falling outs before, especially you know with Dan O'Bannon, and that's a that's a pretty interesting story. So yeah, for sure. So also in the credits, um, probably one of the more uh, you know the names that get attached to this movie when when people talk about it is uh, Rob Bottin who right. was the head of the special effects department for the movie. He was only 22 years old at the time, which is kind of insane. But, uh, you know, before and since, he's done some some pretty cool stuff. He did. Uh, he worked on Star Wars. Uh, I think he was uncredited on that. He was probably like an assistant because he would have been, 
I don't know, like 19 when that was being made or maybe even 18, but he uh, worked on Piranha. And then I guess uh, the two big things that kind of, you know, got him on board for the thing, he worked on The Fog. And uh, I think he was actually in The Fog too. Doesn't he play one of the, one of the ghosts? Uh, I feel like I've read that. Yeah. And I think his work in The Fog too, like the makeup is pretty interesting compared to The Thing. Because The Fog is almost more of a, a traditional horror movie, and yeah. The Thing is a bit of a wild departure. And, uh, I mean, just looking at the uh, the ghosts in The Fog compared to The Alien and The Thing, it's like night and day. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, it's a whole different style. But the other thing he did that was, I guess, probably the you know the real clincher for, for doing The Thing was The Howling. Right. Which, um, you know, obviously came out right around the same time um, as American Werewolf in London. So it gets and a lot of times uh, the howling doesn't get quite as much. Um, you know, people don't talk about it as much as that. But those uh, transformation scenes in that film are also really, really good. Yes. Yeah, they hold fantastic. up very well. I watched the howling pretty recently and I was impressed at how well those special effects hold up. I mean, I really think that. If you uh, release the Howling today, you know, and slightly updated the crew or whatever with contemporary clothing or, you know, what have you, and just use the same effects that, you know, audiences would would still be captivated and believe what they were seeing on screen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it probably goes without saying that, um, you know, probably if you're listening to this podcast and you're a fan of the thing, I would venture to guess that people are in general fans of practical effects. (laughs) Yes, Um, definitely. So, uh, you know. Uh, obviously, you know, practical effects tend to blow CGI out of the water. And it's just one of those things that's unfortunately changed a lot over the last, you know, 30 years. And it's, it's funny to hear, hear the guys that worked on the thing on, on behind the scenes stuff, the way they talk about it. It's very kind of bitter <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, uh, that the computer can do their job now, that kind of thing. Yeah. But, I can't say that I blame them. I would be bitter too. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, it's one of those things where it's not, it's not a, you know, I work in audio, so when people complain about um about how things used to be better when it when it was much harder and they worked on tape and stuff, I have to kind of roll my eyes a little bit because I get it, but also it's like yeah okay well you know if, if it works it works, but on this debate it's like it not only kind of put them out of a job but it, it you know it's kind of derailed that entire art form is is really kind of gone away which is a real shame. But I thought it was interesting to see that Rob Bottin has not done a lot recently, which I don't I don't know what the if there's a story there. He did a little work on Game of Thrones like a year or two ago. And then before that, the last thing he did was Mr. Deeds. <laughs> That's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> I, I wonder what he even did in that film. Maybe yeah, Adam no Sandler's idea. frostbitten foot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> That's all I can think of. I don't think there were a lot of special effects in that film yeah there's not a lot of like you know monsters that burst out of people's chests or anything like that <laughs> i wish there were though it would have made it <laughs> a lot better yeah I, I think i saw that movie in theaters and i remember like nothing about it, it so it's a drive-in um <laughs> i remember it as being not the worst thing adam sandler's been in that's pretty <laughs> much it, though. that's a pretty generous review probably <laughs> So obviously, uh, Rob Bottin will come up a lot uh, over this show. So one of the other folks that shows up in those credits is John L. Lloyd. Uh, he was the production designer on the movie. He had worked on some Alfred Hitchcock Presents and uh, and Blues Brothers, and then later he worked on um, Big Trouble in Little China. But the only like really interesting thing I found about him was that uh, his name is not John L. Lloyd. This is the only movie where his middle initial is credited as an L, and I have no idea why. This is really weird. 
it's John J. Lloyd, and everything else he's credited in is uh, it's J. Lloyd, and I have no idea why. But for whatever reason, in these credits, they used a different middle initial. So I don't know if it was a mistake or like maybe he like didn't want his name attached to this, or, or I, don't, I don't know exactly what the story was there. If he didn't want his name attached, he probably could have gone with a, a better pseudonym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, it's it's not even like it's one letter different, and the letters even look kind of similar. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I thought that was kind of strange. Let's see, we've also got uh, Larry Franco, who um, uh, was a producer on uh, some other um, John Carpenter movies, uh, Escape from New York, and They Live. He's still working and, and producing stuff now. He just recently produced the um, the really wonderful new uh, Independence Day movie. So you know, I guess he's <laughs> he's still doing big stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, he has quite a list, doesn't he? I mean, that guy's been producing stuff for a long long time yeah i mean he was not new to the game when uh when this came out so yeah he he's done a lot of stuff not a lot of like really great memorable stuff but a, a, lot, a lot of stuff <laughs> so he was prolific if not necessarily uh a sign of quality all yeah the time. <laughs> um there's some interesting stuff about uh larry franco that we'll we'll get into actually later this week um where he he played uh a few parts he, he played some parts uh before the actors were hired um, in a couple of cases, which is kind of interesting. We've also got Stuart Cohen, who um, had done uh, a lot of work on the Kojak uh, TV show. And he'd done a lot of TV movies and was actually a friend of John Carpenter's from film school. And Stuart Cohen, I think, was probably the... He's kind of the center point of the genesis of the movie, it seems like. He was the one who kind of started pulling things together. So I guess he's he's maybe the mo- the uh, truest sense of the word producer for this movie. Sounded, sounds like he's the one who kind of connected John Carpenter with this, uh, with the idea of remaking the thing, which was something that some uh, people at Universal were tossing around and then connected him with Bill Lancaster, who wrote the screenplay. So he's he is kind of the one who kind of pulled things together, which is kind of interesting. Uh, hasn't done a lot of work in the last, um, you know, 15 years or so. Um, a lot of TV work since the thing, but um, interestingly, does have a really cool blog uh, that we'll link to where he posts exclusively about the creation of the thing, which is really, really fascinating. And um, he's actually still pretty active in the thing fan community, which is really cool to have somebody who is, you know, a, a major part of the production of the movie to, um, to be, you know, that involved with the community. It's pretty, pretty cool. So definitely um, check that link out in the show notes. And I think the last last person I have on, uh, that's on the credits here is um, Dean Cundey, who um, I did not know Dean Cundey. He's the um, cinematographer for the movie. I did not really know that name before I started uh, kind of looking into stuff for the podcast. And now he's like my personal cinematography hero. He has done so many awesome movies. He worked on uh, Halloween, The Fog, Rock and Roll High School, Escape from New York, Halloween 2, Romancing the Stone, Big Trouble in Little China, Roger Rabbit, all the Back to the Future movies, Apollo 13, and Jurassic Park, to name just a handful of really major credits. Yeah, that's quite a resume. Yeah. And uh, pretty well-rounded, too. You know, seems like he's done a lot of uh, blockbusters and just different genres in general. Yeah, no kidding. And, and you know, some interesting stuff that sort of brings, um, you know, some genre stuff into the mainstream too, like Jurassic Park and uh, and the Back to the Future movies. Right. Which is, is pretty cool. If he had only done the thing in Jurassic Park, he would still probably be, you know, pretty high up on my list of favorite cinematographers. So 
I was that was a pleasant surprise to see that he had done a whole bunch of of really interesting stuff. And he's still around and still I think he's still working um, pretty regularly. But he um, I've seen him in a lot of the kind of recent interviews about the movie and stuff. We're we're right at the 35th anniversary of the movie, so there's been a lot of like you know special screenings and stuff like that. And he seems like he's like at every single one, so you, you can tell this was you know a movie he cared a lot about and, and invested a lot in. So uh, it's pretty pretty interesting to see his his kind of history. So um, I think that will probably wrap us up for for minute one. I didn't I didn't I don't think I had anything else for for this super exciting minute of of words <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't I don't really have anything to add. Um, I mean I'm sure we'll revisit some of these people in the credits anyway. So yeah, for sure. So uh, I think that will wrap up uh, minute one. So make sure you uh, subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Facebook and Twitter, and at thethingminute.com. And um, you know we'll we'll plug stuff. You know, as we go, but uh, anything you want to plug for the first uh, first episode? Oh, some shameless plugging. <laughs> um, well, I do have a new book out, um, and I'm not going to go on and on about it, but it's it's called Doomsayer, and it's available on Amazon.com, uh, and it's my uh, latest collection of short horror fiction. And uh, at some point, maybe I'll mention I I did write a story that was kind of influenced by the thing, but we'll get back to that later. Ah, nice, nice teaser for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I can say that I've, I've read Doomsayer and I, I really enjoyed it. So I can definitely wholeheartedly recommend it to anybody that is interested in, uh, reading a great collection of horror short stories. So, um, we'll definitely put the, put the link to that up in today's show notes and make sure you come back tomorrow for another episode of the thing minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.